know of his developer friends. I don't know who these people are. I I didn't have access to Silver Spring, Maryland, and I'm with uh, my friend this evening, Valerie Irving, who is a Maryland Democratic gubernatorial candidate. Welcome, everybody, to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host, and you can find me on the web at aminordetail.com, and I'm covering some of the uh, latest breaking political stories here in the state of Maryland, and there is a lot to talk about. Um, But tonight, I have the opportunity to sit down with Valerie face-to-face and talk about just the the last nine or so days of her life. And then we're going to go into what she would like to accomplish as governor of Maryland. It's a big state. Well, not a big geographical state, but it has, what, six million people? Yeah. So um, with that, I'm going to go right into it because there is so much material that we are going to have to cover. Um, Valerie, you know, you were – the unexpected candidate, and I think that's that's fair to say. Um, let's just walk it from the very beginning. Um, what a I, I'm still in shock, to be honest with you, about what happened to Kevin. Um, and you know, you and I were talking offline that just the, the last nine days of your life have been a whirlwind. And so, um, I know he was your friend, and I know that you were close to the family, and uh. My heart goes out to you because you were placed in such an, a, a tough position. And you know, what was that like? Walk us through the, that morning. I mean, like, I'm like so many people around the state of Maryland who were just in complete shock uh, on hearing the news that Kevin, uh, who was such a vibrant man uh, and beloved by so many people, just was here one day and then gone the next. And so... I just think it's taking a lot of, a lot of time for people to sort of come to terms with the fact that he's not going to walk through the door. So uh, literally I didn't have a chance to do much thinking about what I was going to do until um, after the family said Shiva and um, we gave them the time that they needed um, before I made any decisions. I was very, very aware of the kind of, grief that that they must be going through so literally i made up my mind to do this in like a 48 hour period of time yeah and uh, i came to that decision because you know i know how hard it was for kevin to work to build his campaign apparatus to raise more money than any of his opponents and to also be the county executive so every day that third largest county in the state of Maryland, third largest county. So every day Kevin was going to work uh, running Baltimore County as a county executive. So he worked very, very hard and he loved campaigning. Yeah. So he would work during the day and he would campaign in the evening and on weekends. And so 
he literally worked a seven day seven day week. I think that Kevin Kamenitz's death this has to be the probably the most earth, the most earth shattering political story in in long as I could remember. Um, and just by the gravity of the he, he's a he's a young man. 60 years old. Yeah, I'm, I'm a year older than Kevin, well, so it was a little bit, uh, you know, it hit so close to home on so many levels. We were just getting our groove on, you know, Kevin and I. We we started back in February. We, you know, people said when I got on, when I joined the ticket that we were like an unlikely pair, but I thought we were great together. I thought there were a, there was a lot of synergy between us. I I got to see the Kevin that so many people got to know in Baltimore County and love across the state of Maryland. Just a a fantastic human being who had a beautiful family who he put first yeah. above all else. I remember being in a meeting, a really important meeting early on in the campaign, and I had not met Carson yet. And um, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and there were like ten people in a boardroom meeting with Kevin. And he looked down at his cell phone, and it was his son calling. And he said, he stopped the meeting, and he said, excuse me, everyone, my son is calling. (laughs) And he took the call, and he just got the biggest smile on his face talking to his son, who was out on a college visit. I think they were in Florida. But that told me a lot about this man that I had agreed to uh, run with, that uh, when his children called or when his wife called, he put everything down. Yeah, and I I want to take a moment to say um having both of us being at the funeral um for him i i i I saw people of incredible courage and resolve that day i mean we were all heartbroken and i'm I'm speaking just as um someone who is much more ancillary in this whole equation just somebody who covered the race had met kevin several times on the campaign trail but didn't didn't know him i i mean that's I, i didn't know kevin i i only knew of him and what little bit that I had interacted with him and he was always pleasant. And, but I will say that the day of his funeral, the the day after he passed away, um, his, his spouse, Jill Kamenitz got up and really made one of the most, I I would say probably the toughest thing that she's ever done with her two boys on looking and with Kevin's closest friends and family memorializing him. And the common theme of that day is, we just shouldn't be here. And I just, and I remember sitting next to, I sat next to Chris Bignaraja, who's running for governor and she and her husband, Colin. And after Jill spoke, I mean, we were all, I mean, it, it was hard because you picture your own family members that, and you realize at that moment that we're all caught up in this magnanimous campaign and we're, we're caught up in the moment of the politics of the situation. There's so much energy, but we could be gone the next day. And I always, you know, I saw Kevin as vibrant, as alive, and someone who um, really believed in the people of Maryland, that he loved Baltimore County, clearly, and he had just such a unique career, Valerie, and he was in public service for many years, and, um, you know, I just remember talking to Kevin um, at one of the forums, and shortly after Kim and I got married, he saw me in the audience, and he walked up, and he goes, well, he goes, my people say mazel tov. And, and so I laughed at him. He goes, well, you know, um, he goes, congratulations. I understand you got married. That's wonderful news. And I said, well, you know, my wife is originally from Leicesterstown. And so he said, is that right? And so we got to talking about that, always conversational. And I, I just, 
I, and I thought that morning, um, oh my gosh, and nobody really kind of knew what what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And we we said we we want to take this time, especially from the press perspective, to give the family the space that they need. Now I know some of the media, and as, as I watched all this unfold, because we were all kind of in this together, I, I felt like some of the media weren't as I guess weren't as respectful as they could be. That was at least from my perspective. Right. Well, you know, I literally, uh, you're in my house right now. I Mm -hmm. literally didn't leave my house for six days. Mm. I I spoke to no press. People who know me know that's what's hard for me to do because, uh, you know, I I made a promise that we were not going to say anything. Uh, I have no comment to make to the press, and I didn't until... I on um, till this past Thursday when I was in Annapolis um, at the Board of Elections, that was the first time I'd spoken to the press since, you know, that last Thursday that Kevin was, uh, that Kevin died. And so, you know, it's been a whirlwind for me. I still um, come home at night and I, I can't believe, A, I was just thrilled and honored that he chose me yeah. as his running mate. Let me ask you about that and how... You guys didn't know each other too well. I mean, you knew each other through Maryland politics, and we all people who are involved in politics at a, at a even at the, the magnanimous level that Montgomery County is, the largest county in the state. You interacted with a lot of other county officials, especially PG Baltimore, probably with Mako as yeah, well. Totally. And so we all kind of know each other. Maybe when we go to Mako conferences in Ocean City. Or we go down to Talls and we all see each other and we're all together as, you know, one political body. Um, but, you know, how well did you know Kevin Kamenitz prior to having that discussion with him? Well, like you said, you just described it so well. Once you're in politics, you know who's in politics. You know, <laughs> you know who's elected. You know a little bit about their background. You know who you like. You know who you want to know more about. And Kevin was one of those people that I wanted to know more about. I didn't even know that I was being vetted for Lieutenant Governor. They kept it that close to the vest and until um somebody wrote an article about someone it. Someone wrote an article about <laughs> it and that was the day I got a call, to be honest with you, the same day. That I wrote the article. Yeah. yeah. Someone from the Cabinet's campaign called and said, We'd like to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and you said, Oh my I, yeah and uh yeah, so it was a kind of that was a whirlwind too. I was not expecting it. I had stepped away from politics for four years, mm-hmm. uh, and I needed to because I think sometimes you need perspective. And I think when you're in politics, especially at the local level, it's so all-encompassing. Sometimes it it gets really hard to gain the perspective that you really need to do this so the, to do this well. I was glad, and so. So they were vetting me, and I don't know who else they vetted. I didn't ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I didn't actually see Kevin at that first meeting. He wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It was just his team. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like an interview. Uh, and um, maybe a week or so went by when I got a call from Kevin, and he said, let's let's talk. And that's when he asked me to join the ticket. And so I said yes then. I didn't walk away and say, I'll get back to you in a week or two. And I had been thinking about it between the first meeting and the second meeting. And I thought, you know what? This guy has all the same values that I do. He loves the state of Maryland. He wants to do the best that he knows how to do. 
um, because he knows how to govern. He, he's been in an elected office 24 years. Actually, at Mako, you know, he, he has the distinction now uh, then of being the longest serving uh, member of Mako in, in the history of Mako. So he was just a I used to I used to introduce him like this and he loved it like he was a scrappy Baltimore a guy from Baltimore. Uh, he he um, loved to roll up his sleeves. He saw a problem. He just got excited about how he was going to fix it. Um, he loved Baltimore County uh, and did all that he could to do for the people in Baltimore County that he could do. And that's why when Kevin and I got together, we started thinking about what our platform would be and how our message would resonate and how we, we believe we were like the face of Maryland, right? And so we look like Maryland and we sort of thought like the people in Maryland think. I'm from over here in uh, Montgomery County, you know, a good ways from where he was brought up in, uh, in Baltimore County. And uh, we were able to do a lot together in a very short period of time. And he liked my, my style. Like, I called him scrappy, but he thought I was just as scrappy as him. Um, but we had this way of approaching people. Kevin would go up to people and was so warm and so kind and so um, accessible. Uh, and I was the same way, in, in, in a different kind of way, but the, the very same way. So we started to see each other as very similar kinds of people. And we had more experience together than any of the other tickets. And Kevin used to say to people all the time, Valerie can serve on day one. God forbid anything should ever happen to me. And I, I know he was, he introduced me like that a lot. And, you know, and the most horrible thing did happen. And so um, as I was trying to make up my mind about what I should do, what I kept focusing on was this campaign apparatus, the work that Kevin had done, for years and years and years was leading to him becoming the governor of the state of Maryland. I believe he could have been the governor and I think he was the candidate to beat Hogan. And so as I'm looking um, at making this decision, what kept coming up in my mind was what would Kevin do if the shoe was on the other foot? I do not believe he would have, you know, left the campaign. I think he would have said, we're not done yet. And uh, my analogy is that I used to run track in high school and I used to be the, the last runner in the four by four relay. And um, I like to say to people in the last few days when Kevin was running his race for governor, he did not drop that baton. That baton is there for me to grab it and finish the last leg of the race. And so I see myself doing that um, in his memory but also for me, um, I think I have the strength and the fortitude and the experience and the message to con continue on. Yeah. Um, looking forward, um, well, let me touch on, we know that Kevin spent 16 years on the Baltimore County Council as a county councilman. And then in 2010, he was elected to the county executive and was reelected in 2000. And 14. And so, but I want to talk about your experience. Let's, you've had a, 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 I would say, a wildly interesting career in Montgomery County politics. You made a lot of firsts. I mean, you're, um, you're well known. I mean, everybody knew the name Valerie Irvin. I came from 
little old Washington County, Maryland, up in Western Maryland. And, and I got to tell you, Valerie, as an, as an, an African-American female in Washington County, and I'm not making any aspersions on Washington County because I still love it. My whole family's there, but I'll say this on the record. You ain't going to see an African-American female elected in Washington County anytime soon. And that's just, I mean, you go 75, 80 miles up the road and that's just the way it is. And it's, I'm hoping it changes. I'm hoping that, um, that, as you know, we grow in our culture in Maryland, I mean, it's a very diverse state. It really is. But you were the first African-American female ever elected to the Montgomery County Council. Before that, you served two years on the Montgomery County Board of, Ed- Montgomery County Board of Education. Was that at large or was that in a specific district? We run at large, but we serve in a district. Right. right. So your political career even before you were elected, you were involved in politics. Let's start from the beginning. Where where did the spark come from? What's the impetus behind jumping into the to to politics in Maryland? Oh, I I listen. I was an Air Force brat, so I was born on Guam. Uh, my father served in the military for 28 years, and so my family and I traveled around the country and outside the country. So. I learned early uh, on that there was never a stranger. So I could walk into any room at any time and feel comfortable there. So I actually ended up here in the D.C. area because I was a rank-and-file member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where my father actually retired from the military. That's where I met Donna Edwards. In Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, because our fathers knew each other prior to even marrying our moms. They served in Okinawa during the Korean War, and then they met up again because we were both stationed at the same military base, and they ran into each other. I think I was 11, and Donna was 10, and they literally lived catty-corner to our house. And so um, I got really involved in high school in the union because... I worked at a Safeway store back then, bagging groceries. When it was, was this in Albuquerque? It was in Albuquerque. And uh, I I got bitten by the political bug in high school where I ran for student senate and served. Um, you know, I was always interested. And then I went to the University of New Mexico and got really bitten by the political bug when uh, when um, Bill Richardson first ran for Congress. I think it was in 1980. I worked on his campaign. Mm-hmm. I got hired by the local union, another first, the first black woman ever hired. It's New Mexico. The black population was 2%. Uh, But I started getting sent around um, the region to different states. And I actually worked on Ann Richards' campaign when she was running for state treasurer of Texas. And she became governor. And she went on to become governor. I have a great, great picture with her on that campaign. I think George W. Bush succeeded Ann Richards. He did. I, I believe he did. In 94, I believe. Yes, he did. Yeah. Did. That's when she had that famous line about him being born with a silver, a silver spoon in it. Yeah. And so, you know, and so um, I ended up coming here in 1987. I lived here since 1987. I went to work downtown for the uh, United Food and Commercial Workers International. Downtown D.C. Downtown D.C. And um, immediately, you know, started doing my my organizing work around the country and. I had two little boys, and uh, this is when I got really bitten by the political bug. I got politicized by the public school system Mm -hmm. when my two children were attending 
public school. And that's a whole long story, but um, my youngest son came home one night and said that he was when uh, was put into a low, the lowest reading group in his class. And I thought, well, that's got to be a mistake because this was a kid at eight years old that was reading the Washington Post sports page uh-huh. in the morning. So I knew it was a mistake. And so I ended up going to the school, meeting with this reading teacher and his teacher saying, this is a re- my child's a reader. How can he be told anything different? And they said, and I quote, well, Ms. Servant, you know, most moms think their kids are smarter than they really are. And that like sort of sparked something in me that, that, that day I said, well, I want you to have them tested. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go outside the school system and have them tested myself. And uh, to make a long story short, the, the, both test results came back and they showed that Jonathan was reading at the 10th grade level. And I learned that at this particular elementary school near my house, where you're sitting right now, 100% of the white kids were, were um, tracked gifted and talented, but none of the kids of color were. Hmm. That, so, of course, I went on a, um, a mad tear at that point about finding out everything I could find out about how is it that kids are even tracked? Why are they tracked? What's the purpose of it? So I, I along with some other folks, started an organization called the Montgomery County Education Forum, and we did a lot of research and wrote some papers about why this was not such a great idea. And from that, from then, you know, people pushed me to run for the Board of Education. Lots of women are like me. We, we don't self-select. And it was not something that was on my radar screen at the time. I had little kids and, you know, anyway, I ended up running and I ended up winning. And I was only the second woman in Montgomery County, uh, African-American woman to be, uh, serve on the school board it was Odessa Shannon mm. before me. And then I served two years. And the reason I didn't finish a four-year term was because Tom Perez I worked for George Leventhal. I was his chief of staff, and Tom Perez's office was right across the hallway from Howard's. One day he came to me and he said he had plans to run for attorney general, and that seat would be an open seat, and that I should think about running for it. And I was just terrified about it. I said, oh, that's not for me. I mean, I was just going to run for school board and then call it a day. Well, I waited until the last moment of the last day that I could go to the to the board of elections to file to file I literally went in at it closed at five I went in at four <laughs> and I filed and uh, I ended up in a very crowded field and I won uh, the district five race and uh, so I served on the council from 2006 until I left wow and um, and then I served one year as, count, as council president the most like I can't tell people how hard that year was if they don't remember it. It was 2011. It, it was the height of the biggest recession that ever hit Montgomery County. And that's when I look at the people running for the for um, governor, I think to myself, there's only two people on that dais who have ever had to govern in tough times where they had to make tough decisions and that 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 required them to like think about you know, how to protect the tax taxpayer base, how to make sure people didn't get laid off or lose their jobs. And it was really a very, very tough year. The only other person actually on that day is, is uh, Rashawn Baker, who had to govern in Prince George's County under some very, very tough 
and difficult um, times. He was elected the same year as Kevin Kamenetz was yes. elected county executive. Absolutely the same. And they were both, of course, coming. They're, well, of course, Kevin was coming off of the eight-year term, mm-hmm. and so was Rashern. Yeah. And so, you know, during your your tenure as a, a county councilwoman, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that there's mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. People, some people say that. I talk to a lot of people in Montgomery County politics and around the state, and some people say that Valerie Irving was undeniably one of the best county councilmen that we've ever had. And some people say she threw some sharp elbows. I I mean, I wrote a piece, um, and sadly, some of your former colleagues had some harsh words for you. But you've developed a reputation, I think, because you're your own person. And and I, I, I always have seen you from afar at a distance, not knowing you, that you march to the beat, to the your you know, to the proverbial your beat to your own drum. And you didn't you didn't go with the flow. You did your own thing. And to me, I I personally I've always loved and been attracted to politicians that never got set in with the establishment. And it's and it, you sort of defied so many different norms in a way. And as I watch in your career, well, here's what I say to people who think I have sharp elbows. I, I carry that as a badge of honor because I didn't come to into politics to have a job for life. I know that the seat that I sat in was the people's seat, and I was only there as long as they wanted me to be in that seat. And that carried with it some heavy, heavy responsibility. And I'm not a go-along-to-get-along person. And so if my elbows are sharp because kids got fed during the summer, which I made happen, if my elbows were sharp because I had to fight to make sure that moms who needed um, help paying, getting subsidies for child care, then my elbows were going to be sharp. If my elbows were sharp because elderly people needed affordable housing, then my elbows are going to be sharp. And if my colleagues didn't feel that was made them comfortable, that's, that's on them. The people of, of my district elected me twice. Actually, they, they elected me more than that because they elected me on the school board, too. Mm-hmm. And then when I ran for Bernie Sanders delegate in 2016, I won the most votes in the county. So people have followed my career. And what I'm most proud of is that when I think of my grandmothers, who both had to clean people's homes and iron people's clothes, and take care of other people's children, to see me do what I'm doing, I'm standing on the shoulders of some women who did that work so that I could do what I'm doing. And I do not, I do not feel any uh, remorse uh, for people not liking it. I didn't come into politics to be popular. I came into politics to solve people's problems and make the world a little bit better when I left than when it was when I got there. And, and I think that Kevin and I, we've had these conversations together and we had the same kind of like ethos about public service. And, and, and this is also Marty Soul Johnson, who is my uh, running with me as my running mate. Yeah, we, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we, we, we think the same way. We have been called to service. Yeah. You know, I don't know how other people get here, but yeah. I feel a calling serve. It's like my whole life has been about service. From the time I got into the labor movement where I organized really poor, mostly black women workers around the country, mostly in the South, it was like the most extraordinary experience of my life that people who had 
no education, um, and had everything to lose, would go on, they would be in front, on the front lines of these organizing campaigns. And I saw that as courage like I've never seen before. They had everything to lose, but they were not afraid. And so I've had a lot of experiences that maybe a lot of people haven't had. And uh, so when I come to the table now, like I'm going to have my first debate tomorrow. Is that the televised debate? In- it's a televised debate. It's in uh, Baltimore. Uh, I, so people say, well, aren't you afraid? I'm not afraid. Uh, and what's, what makes me not afraid is that, like, Kevin's life is gone, but he gave his whole life to do this. And uh, I, I just think that's an extraordinary thing. Um, so I'm going to finish it. And uh, I think that people are getting excited. I think um, this was kind of like a race that, and Kevin used to say, like, some of these forms are pretty deadly. Like, everybody agrees with each other. Yes. It's like no one has anything different to say. I've covered about 10 or 15 of them. <laughs> yeah. And they all, you know, there's some minor policy disagreements, but everybody is typically polite. Everybody is typically um, all in agreement that they all believe that they would be better than Larry Hogan. And they, you know, they have a different way to get there. But, I, I, you, you know, I've covered from the very beginning, these candidate forums and they don't ever call them debates anymore. Cause you know, you, you're actually not, not debating. Debate. I'm hoping that you do debate. I agree. And I think that you getting into this race, I think you, you, you might take the opportunity to truly differentiate yourself. And especially when you were on the council, um, you know, you, you went out and put your ideas out there and you didn't think twice. And you said, this is where I stand this is who I represent, and I'm going to take care of not only my district here in Silver Spring, you're going to take care of all the Montgomery County yeah. residents. Yeah. And that's how, listen, I think these forums are interesting, but they can be kind of deadly boring. No, they're deadly boring. You're right. The same thing and agree with each other. Look, my take on politics is this. I think that the policy is important, mm-hmm. but I think what people are voting on is the person. Mm-hmm. Do I trust this person? Do I like this person? Do I believe this person will do the right thing when they're in office? And, you know, you can only, you can't fake authenticity. Either you're the real deal or you're not. And I think at the end of the day, people will go along uh, with your policy prescriptions if they think that you're the kind of person that they can trust to do it. I mean, people talk about President Obama all the time about what was it about Obama? It was a, he's an extraordinary person in terms of his, um, you know, his ability to be a politician and his ability to govern. What I got from Obama was that he um, had a way that he could, comp- he was so authentic that people felt that from him, right? And it was like, I just like him. I feel inspired by him. He has a life story that resonates with my own and I think like there are so many people that try to be every all things to all people and you can't do that and you know if you're afraid to be liked then you're never going to do anything hard and Kevin used to say that all the time uh, and his, his, his quote was about Hogan he was like look of course everybody likes Hogan because if he doesn't step in poop 
You know, <laughs> he's not ever going to get, you know, his shoe dirty, which means he's never going to do anything. And that was a Kevin Kaminitz quote about Hogan. And I believe the same is true. Governing is hard, hard work. You don't make a lot of friends if you have to make tough decisions. Right. On the council, Valerie, what do you what would you say was your most proudest accomplishment? Oh my gosh, I have so many of them. Uh, my first year was I recognized that uh, there are so many kids living in poverty in Montgomery County, even though everybody thinks everyone here is well off. So I know that there are such a high farms rate here that those farms mm-hmm. children in the summer I worried, like, if they were getting fed at school, how are they getting fed during the summer months? So I worked with some people um, from the federal government, and we that we knew that there was a a, a pot of federal money uh, that w- that that if the superintendent signed off on it, we would be able to access it to to do a summer food something we now call a summer food program. Well, I had to work with Jerry Weist, who was the then superintendent. To get him to agree. Long time superintendent. Yeah, 12 years. To sign off. He just hadn't done it. So I kind of like had to put some pressure there. And we today, we have um, around the county elementary schools where you can walk into the school during the summer months and get fed your lunch. That, to me, was huge because those, I don't know how those kids were eating. And I think there are, I forget how many schools. We started out with a pilot with just a handful. And now I think there's like over, I don't know, 70, 80 schools around the county. Uh, I really focused on food and nutrition because um, what, as we're learning, if you read the current report, one of the things that comes out in that is something that I've been working on is that it requires a lot of, children require a lot of support poor children, you know, everything that happens during the school day, which is just a short period of time during the day, lots of things happen outside the school day around these kids. And so I instituted something called the Kennedy Cluster Project, which was a an experiment in the Kennedy Cluster of schools where we would um, engage um, Ike Leggett and all his staff, um, Health and Human Services, the rec department, uh, all these different um, uh, uh, government entities to see how we can use, go into this one cluster of schools and, and experiment on how we can support those kids to see if it made any difference in closing the achievement gap. So that was, um, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I think it's ongoing. We did a lot. Um, I actually instituted the first ever in the country uh, food recovery network um, that is um, paid for by the by the county. That's the idea of some young people at the University of Maryland who would go in the cafeteria and see perfectly fine, untouched, uneaten food being dumped in the garbage. Mm. And uh, one of them came to me and I go, let's do that here in Montgomery County. So now um, it's been implemented and instituted in the county and a lot of other jurisdictions around the country saw what we were doing here and they, they copied it. So what we do is working with restaurants, the college, um, you know, uh, nonprofits, lots of groups, they're able to put repackage food and make sure that um, people who are in need get food that's just perfectly fine and we, it was being thrown away. And it's also an environmental um, issue because, you know, that food goes into the 
to the landfill. And, um, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. So I, I can go on and on and on. One of them is also around pre-K and getting Governor O'Malley to to uh, put in an extra, I don't know, two or three million dollars in my last year on the council to add 58,000 more kids to universal breakfast programs around mm. the, the state. So whenever I saw a need and no one else was jumping in, I would just go do it. I actually went and sat down with Mr. Who's Mr. O'Malley, now Governor O'Malley, and asked him if he would please help me do this, and he did. So like close to 60,000 more kids got access to universal mm-hmm. breakfast programs. Kevin and I saw together at the state level, we had so much experience doing the work that we just wanted to expand some of that stuff statewide. You decided in 2013 that you're going to step down. You took a job with working families. And tell us about the organization. Yeah, it's interesting. People um, wanted to know why I left. I knew I wasn't going to run. I was finishing my second term, and I knew I wasn't going to run. And then I was exhausted. I was exhausted, and I was pretty um, unhappy with how mean politics had gotten at the, at the yeah. county council. It was really mean. And uh, I got a call from a headhunter um, before I made any decision about what I was doing. And, and um, I didn't actually respond to the headhunter's call mm-hmm. for a while. And then finally, he had someone else call. And so I went up to New York and met with the working families folks. And they said, we'd like you to come and run our nonprofit arm. And I, I actually accepted it. And what that job did was it allowed me to do on the national level what everyone, they were following me too, what I was doing on the local level. Like how did we expand some of those, you know, really good ideas. So I went uh, and worked for them. People thought I moved. I never moved to New York. I mm-hmm. just traveled to New York a lot from here. But we also had an office in Baltimore and then we had an office in D.C. Did you work out of there? I worked out of home mostly, but I would have lots of meetings in D.C. and lots of meetings in Baltimore. Right. But I spent a lot of time in the Brooklyn office. Right. And then when you went to work for two in 2013? Mm -hmm. No, actually it was 14. 14. Yeah. When you went to work for them, um, a congressional race was coming up. And we knew that Chris Van Hollen was running for for U.S. Senate. And your friend Donna Edwards Mm -hmm. is running for U.S. Senate. And so Chris Van Hollen, of course, is going to leave his seat. And that opened up a massive primary in CD8. And from people from Jamie Raskin, of course, who was elected um, to that seat, to Kathleen Matthews, David Trone, Joel Rubin, just to name a few, um, they all ran. And I believe they had about seven, eight, maybe nine people at one time. It was a massive, yeah, big primary. You thought about jumping in. And... Then you ultimately said, no, nah, this might not be for me. Yeah, what happened was um, I didn't actually get in that race till too late. It was in July. Of 2016. Yeah, and, and by then, Jamie, Jamie, Kathleen Matthews with a lot of money. For 15. Tr- Wait. It was 15. Yeah, 15. Crone got in and spent, as you know, more money in a, in a, in a $13 million. congressional primary than anybody had ever seen. And actually... I, at the first file, I told my team at the first filing, before the first filing, and we knew we weren't going to have that kind of money on the boards. I said, you know what, there, 
the right thing's going to happen here, and this is just not my time. Yeah. And so Jamie's a member of Congress, and that's the right thing to happen. And sometimes it's about timing, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just not for you. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, Jamie is going to serve the the people of the of the eighth congressional district well. He's a friend of mine, and uh, I supported him very early when he was running against Ida Rubin and. 2006. We have a story about that one, Jamie and I, but I think the right thing happens. You know, my, my feeling about politics is sometimes everything is about timing. Sometimes it just doesn't work for you. And um, I think the right thing happened. I think the voters spoke. The right thing happened. He's great. Right. Uh, I consider him a friend. And uh, But, you know, again, it was one of those, uh, an African-American woman in Montgomery County, you know, has never run it run and won in her own right for a state senate seat that has yet to happen um and also donna was the first african-american woman in maryland to ever have a seat in congress yeah and so um there's you know it's unfortunately we have to still think about this but there's still a lot of firsts to come yes even in 2018 and there's never been a female governor of the state of maryland no um so I don't do things to be the first, but it, I always find myself in these positions where I have to make some really hard decisions about the way forward. And one of the things Kevin's death has done for me is, is, is makes me know that life is not promised. Yeah. I could walk out that door and not come back. And I just think while I have the time and I'm healthy and I, I know what I want to accomplish here, that this is the time for me to do it. And as I'm looking at Stacey Abrams' race in Georgia, it's been a nasty race in that primary. I've been paying attention oh, to that race. Oh, my goodness. I, I just, I'm just glad that um, the Maryland race hasn't gotten to that place of, like, just the, the kind of nastiness that's happened. No, but there's been some undercutting. There's undercutting here. I mean, you know, Valerie. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah. you were working for working families, mm-hmm. and you, when you when Kevin decided to pick you, suddenly they said you don't have a job anymore. Well, how it happened was this: um, there were some, uh, you know, Travis Tazelar, the uh, campaign manager for Ben Jealous, got wind that I may be talking to Kevin. This was even before I said yes. And they set up some dummy URLs, apparently with my face on them. Was this the Kevin's Irving URL? Yeah, I never saw them. Because I remember Kevin told me at a forum in Montgomery County earlier this year, I think it was in January or February, was it the United for Maryland forum, Mm -hmm. that it was right before he was going to make his announcement. Mm -hmm. And he said... I asked him, I said, do you know anything? But he goes, I don't know anything about this, Ryan. And I said, okay, all right. You know how we found, I found out because I called New York and some folks up there researched it and they, they called me back and they said, yes, a guy named Travis Pazelar bought up all the Valerie Irvin cabinet names and they put up this dummy, these two dummy sites. I never saw them, but they... And Travis is the campaign manager to, to Ben, ben Jealous, the former yeah. NAACP chief. So I, I I was a little surprised by it, but so I wasn't even on the cabinet ticket. They were tr- Ben Jealous and his campaign manager were trying to keep me off 
the ticket before I decided. So a call came to me from a former colleague from Working Families, and they said, Angelus called the board chair, the national board chair, and asked me to basically send around an email indicating that I would not go on the ticket. And when I basically said, well, I'm not going to do that, two days later I was told, well, you got you don't have a job here. Let me just let me just better understand this. Ben Jealous sent an email. No, he called. He called mm-hmm. your place of employment, working families, who incidentally endorsed him mm-hmm. and basically tried to prevent you from being on a ticket? Yeah, he, he wanted, a gubernatorial he ticket. He wanted me to to like send around an email basically saying I would not that Valerie Irvin is not going to, you know, join the candidate ticket or something to that effect. And my immediate response was I'm not gonna say exactly what I said because it's like <laughs> I don't know if I can tell you exactly what I said, but it was more more or less like that's not gonna happen. Did you have a conversation with Ben at that time when you knew that was going down? No, he was blowing up my phone, but I did after that call came I, I decided I wasn't gonna talk to him. So you didn't take the call? No. Okay. And so, I mean, at this, it sounds like that Mr. Jealous was really trying to railroad you. Clearly, it is what it is. You know what? I've been around politics a long time. I know some people play hard and dirty. I'm a big girl, and I just sort of, you know, some people know about it. Now a lot of people are going to know about it. But um, Well, I mean, Valerie, this is, I mean, this is an interesting breakthrough. Um, There's other stories that... Ben Jealous seems to be the one who is launching bombs at other campaigns. And I, I, I hear this consistently throughout this gubernatorial race that um, there's a lot of nastiness coming from that campaign. And it's sort of interesting that, I mean, both of you have had unique career paths. And one of the criticisms of Ben is that he's really not been around Maryland politics at all to know the players, to know how, Maryland truly reacts to certain policies or that he just is using Maryland as a a national launching pad for maybe something in the future. I mean, Seven State Law did a piece where they determined and showed that he only voted in Maryland once in 2012. And now that, you know, very sadly that Kevin Kamens has since passed and you're in this race. Valerie Irving is in this race that people are saying Kev, or they're saying that Ben Jealous and Valerie are in the same lane in this race. And then, of course, there's Rashern in Prince George's County, and he's taking some of that establishment support. But now people are looking at this and they're saying, all right, Valerie's in the race. How is this going to upset the race in different ways? And I say I was going to put out a piece today and then but wait for this interview until we did it. But my my thoughts are is that it completely upsets the race. You have a base in Montgomery County. You are well-known in the African-American community, and that's a major portion of the Democratic vote in the primaries. And not only that, you're Maryland. I mean, you know the issues. You've been here. You've been elected. You know the players. You've been doing policy for a long time. I don't see that with Ben Jealous, and I do see – look, his campaign – put out a statement, his lawyer contacted me and said, don't spread Mr. Jealous, or please, we request you not send out Mr. Jealous's home address 
And I, and it was an innocuous tweet based on a police report that I received. And I just want to say for the record that there's a lot of, a lot of information out there about Mr. Jealous in that there's lots of questions that people have. And Valerie, I can't get anything out of the campaign. I mean, they sent his lawyer after me. And what he doesn't realize is that I don't scare. And that's fine. I mean, I get it. I mean, maybe, you know, their issue was is that he was receiving death threats. And I did check that out. That is true. There is records of that. And but Mr. Jealous also voluntarily disclosed his home address in Pasadena, Maryland, on the Maryland State Board of Elections. And his campaign spokesman, Kevin Harris, ultimately told me that um, it was some obscure government website. Okay, uh, that's fine. But, you know, I've been the recipient of their disdain for, you know, a few weeks now. But I've been asking hard questions regarding his departure from the NAACP. I think people really want to understand why he stepped down in 2013 when they saw his career as really taking off. People have questions about his sealed divorce records. People have questions about the multitude of rumors that are taking place that there are certain domestic issues that may affect him. There are issues of, uh, you know, some things in his background. I have people tell me all the time, notable Marylanders on background to say, this man is not a man of character. As a reporter, as a journalist, I'm just investigating this. They've been stonewalling me, and that's fine. But I think that, as we all know, the truth always comes out in campaigns. They do. And so, and I really think that if it comes down to character, and it clearly shows that Mr. Jealous in his attempt, I mean, you don't have a job now. I mean, you're running for governor. That's the biggest job I can ever think of. But in this, Valerie, you know, I would, when somebody comes after my personal employment, I've had that happen to me. It's crazy. People didn't like what I wrote. People didn't like an interview that I've done. They've attacked me in a way that hits my pocketbook. Oh, man, you're fighting with fire there. That's my family. That's my livelihood. Well, all I'll say to all of this is that, again, I think people are going to be voting on character, and um, people in Maryland are very interesting. They check everything. They, they, they will look. They will ask questions. Um, I'm not going to cast any aspersions um, uh, on Ben, but I will say this. You, you mentioned earlier uh, when you started talking that, um, who is going to come out to vote now that I'm in this race? And I was on a radio show, a Barbara Arnline show, and a young African-American millennial woman called in and she said, I am calling in to encourage Miss Irvin to run. <laughs> and I hope she runs because I see myself in her. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the African-American vote. It's more, it's more specifically women and African-American women in particular who carry the Democratic primary uh, voters. And so they are a hefty and important uh, voting bloc. And uh, he does not resonate with those voters, in my opinion. And Mr. Jealous. Yes. And I I see, I I really do not think we have the same voting base. And I was on the Kojo show the other day. Yeah, um, I heard that. Yeah, and I basically, uh, um, Tom Sherwood asked me a very similar question I go look before this before I got in the race it seemed a little bit like um it was Kevin and Rashern and Ben like kind of like one or two points apart from each other that's right but the majority of the voters were undecided and I think now there is some juice in this race 
I think people are getting a little excited. I mean, it's um, been topsy turvy. Yeah. I mean, this, yeah. and so I think there's lingering questions now, Valerie, as related to your campaign. Mm-hmm. Will the ballots be reprinted? And they absolutely should be. I, I'm in the camp where I understand that it could cost the state a lot of money, but I know that at, at this juncture, where are we on that legal fight? So, again, um, I have been uh, talking to people trying to get a lawyer who's not conflicted uh, out of the, the uh, of this particular situation. And there's such a small group of lawyers who do this kind of campaign finance work that we're going to have to cast a broader net. Um, um, Emily's list had been helping get us a list of lawyers. I've... Uh, been calling a lot of people who are eager to help. We believe it's pretty cut and dry that it that the state board of elections just chooses not to do this when the law is pretty clear that they must. And so I have to seek legal counsel to um, get this done, and probably going to ask for an attorney general opinion. Uh, but this is bigger than me. This is about. Um, we have 30 some days left. I know. Uh, this is about voter disenfranchisement, I think, and it's about um, being fair to Maryland voters and their choices in this race. And this takes away. It's actually constitution. My constitutional right as a as a uh, candidate to have my name show up on a ballot. I mean, it's almost laughable that they're trying to make this be about money and that we don't want to, we can't afford to get, you know, buy this special kind of paper that we have to get. It's too expensive. Well, if this is about democracy and people's ability to choose the candidate of their choice, but all the candidates' names won't be on the ballot, there is something fundamentally wrong with that. And most people who are following that can this race can see that that's true. Including your opponents. Alec Ross has come out in support of you. So has Rich Maddalino. Has any of the other candidates? I think Chris has even issued a statement. Um, I think people are with you. They believe that your rights are being infringed upon if your name is not printed at the top of that ballot. Not just my rights, but the rights of the primary voters in Maryland to not have a choice clearly me and my opponent are a choice. And to, to have, you know, that not be the case, you know, we're looking at uh, getting a hold of a lot of civil rights organizations and lawyers who fight for this kind of um, uh, a, a right to have the ballot be um, fair. Uh, this is not fair. And so, you know, I find it uh, very interesting that the people who should be screaming at the top of their lungs are kind of silent. About it. Who's doing the screaming? You know, it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. To be honest with you, look, I, you know, I got I I got in the race on Thursday, and it's clear. You you said a lot in your your intro about me that if I have sharp elbows and I'm not part of the establishment, uh, what I'm trying to do here is making some people very uneasy. And so clearly, it's a small state, a handful of people. Um, have access to the, the folks at the State Board of Elections, but this is, uh, this is about the people of Maryland and their ability to vote for the candidates of their choice. And if the, all the candidates of their choice, uh, like I am now on the ballot, I went to the Board of Elections, you I filed. filled out the paperwork, I filed my, 
my running mate filed and for us to now have to fight to have our names on the ballot is just really incredulous to me and completely unfair to voters. Have you gotten mostly positive feedback? Almost everything I've heard has been positive. And, you know, I have to just say, give a shout out to Alec Ross. I haven't heard from anybody else, but he clearly is, is making a point that he believes that it would be whoever wins would be unfair if my name and um, my soul Johnson's name are not on the ballot, it would be an un, it's an unfair race. Right. And uh, I really appreciate him. He's my opponent and I understand that, but he is a very honorable person because he called me and he welcomed me to the race. And he said, this is what I'm going to Did do. Did all the candidates welcome you? Only Rashern and uh, Alec Ross. And I know that some put out statements. If they did, I haven't seen them. Okay. okay. Introduce your running mate. Okay. I met Marisol Johnson through Kevin Kamenin. They were friends, and Marisol was going to run for the county council seat in Kevin's district, and she um, had a change of heart, decided not to do it, but she's a first also. She's the first Latina woman to ever um, serve on the Board of Education in Baltimore County. She is an adopted, um, she was adopted by a couple from Baltimore County from El Salvador. She's a business owner. She's 37 years old. She has four children, Um, a beautiful woman and smart and committed and passionate and believes that her life is about service too. And uh, when you meet uh, Marisol, she is like one tough woman. And uh, the two of us together, you know, the, the, conv- the conventional wisdom when you pick a running mate is like, you got to pick someone from a different part of the state. I know people yeah. were saying, people were gaming it yeah, out. Yeah, they were gaming right? it Right? They're going to say, yeah. Valerie's going to pick a white male from Hartford or Baltimore County, and he's going to have this type of experience. And then Thursday, people said, okay. Yeah. This is, this is a, another interesting ticket that it's two females both minority women and and you know in fairness chris is and she was in maryland has a a, a female female ticket yeah. and she said something interesting that well it's always flipped there's always two males on the ticket why can't there be two females right. on the ticket i i just don't believe in the conventional wisdom i said to myself who made those rules because <laughs> uh, we're not going to abide by the rules and so she clearly does represent Baltimore County, which was important to me. Um, and she has experienced uh, governing. And um, the night that Kevin was at, that, thir- that Wednesday night, Kevin was at the uh, forum at Bowie State, and Montessor was having a meet and greet for me in Baltimore County. And so it's just like an interesting thing how we came together. But I had heard of her before I met her. Like, she has her own profile um, as an up-and-coming, you know, political leader in Maryland. And, of course, um, being uh, El Salvadoran, uh, first generation, so many of the immigrant community that Kevin was very close to because of all the things he did on behalf of the immigrant community, which was to, you know, sign executive orders to to protect DACA students Mm -hmm. uh, and executive order to make Baltimore County a sanctuary uh, community. Kevin Kamenitz did so many things on behalf of so many people that folks just don't know about. And so we want to carry on that tradition of 
uh, he believes strongly when um, when the Muslim ban was uh, instituted by by the president that that just did not sit well with Kevin. And so he didn't wait. He just signed these executive orders. He testified in Annapolis. He so this is why. Um, yeah, I remember Kevin standing with uh, Kazir Khan. Kazir Khan, yeah. uh, who loved Kevin, and uh, the story about him is like he, you know, would carry. He carried his constitution in his pocket, but he also carried Kevin Kavanaugh's executive order in his yeah. pocket. Is 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 Khan from Baltimore County? Um, you know, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure, but they were very good friends. And, yeah. Uh, Whenever he would give a speech, he would pull out that executive order, and he endorsed, obviously endorsed Kevin. Yeah. Uh, and so wherever he went in the immigrant community, he was like seen as a hero. When you were set to make this decision to run, and then of course choose a running mate, did you did you have a few people in mind, or did you instantly know that you were going to pick Marisol? I had no idea what I was going to do. It she her she came to me. Yeah. Um, Did you vet it with anyone inside of... I vetted it with just a few people. Now, again, I would hope that if any state legislators are listening to this podcast, this never happened before. That's right. So the statute is an old statute that literally gives a candidate five freaking working days. <laughs> and yeah. I literally had two because I was... I was, I was um, you know, following the family's uh, yeah. wishes and... I literally had – you can't bet someone in two days. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't know how long Kevin betted me. It was for a while. Um, I think that statute needs to be looked at. I hope someone p- gets it and, you know, works it through the, the – Of course, maybe it takes some more time. You can't do this in five working days. I mean, because it, it – I mean, he passed on a Thursday morning. Yeah. And then from that time, the clock – started to run. Yeah. You had Friday, which nobody was going to talk politics I didn't, on a I, Friday. I told you I was here for six days. I didn't talk to anybody. Yeah. And so I literally, one week later, was in the Board of Elections um, yeah. becoming a candidate. So Marisol and I, she had, she believed in me. I believe in her. We made a decision that we would walk this path together, and we're going to do that. And uh, we feel good about it. Um Anybody who is listening to this has no, I mean, I just want people to understand how difficult a moment this has been because my soul knew Kevin for years. Uh, she knew him well and longer than me. And so there's still a, a, a heavy uh, feeling of grief around uh, a lot of Kevin's friends, obviously his family. And so we're being very careful uh, and very cognizant of, how recent this is and how it's it's an open wound yeah. Valerie I think that as we t- talked about and not to belabor the point but it it was a it's a true shock to everyone and people who didn't know Kevin well myself included I didn't know Kevin well just by talking to him on the campaign trail I I, I felt that being in the Maryland political circle as we all are there was an overwhelming sense of just loss and having a wife and two children of my own. That's where my heart went to. That's where my mind went to. Mm -hmm. This is about Jill and um, Dylan and Carson. And I thought, I just, I don't know how I could do it. And I, I, you know, plus this whole other massive element that Kevin was on pace to be 
one of the front runners oh, yeah. for to be elected. Yeah. And then suddenly this burden is dropped to you. Then you step in and people were, like I said, I'll use the word. They were gaming it out. They were trying to f- figure out, is Allie going to run? Are they going to dissolve the entire apparatus or what, or is she going to stay as Lieutenant governor? They're going to pick somebody else to run at the top. And, you know, and then people on that day, on that morning, I'm furiously looking at the Maryland Constitution to say, okay, what is the game plan? Well, there was little ambiguity there. I mean, there, it, it told us exactly what needed to happen next. And, you know, I thought some of the media coverage was a little in your face. Some people put it out pretty quickly. You know, what's Valerie going to do? This is, but that's yeah, their job. I get it. But I hope people were sensitive. I was actually not reading any of it. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, this is just a remarkable, I mean, unbelievable situation that has occurred over the last nine days. And I can't believe I'm saying this. I mean, we're not even two weeks out. And we're sitting in your office in Silver Spring and your home. And we're talking about you running for governor. I'm sure nine days ago you thought, well, you know, I'm I'm on this ticket as the LG. We're going to work hard. And so here you are, and now you're being talked about by everybody. This is a mass. This is this transcends Maryland. I've had people in Virginia talk, tell me, "Have you heard about?" Of course, I've heard about this. And you're going to go debate tomorrow night. Well, it's it's actually a taping in the morning. Or a so taping. I, so hopefully we're going to be done too. Because yes. I, I still have debate prep to do tonight, but it's uh, we. I think it starts at ten forty-five. So here's one of my final questions, and we'll get into policy in a subsequent opportunity to talk. Are you the candidate to beat Larry Hogan? I believe that once this uh, this uh, primary is over and the excitement that we're beginning to generate around my being in the race, I think that I would be a great uh, a candidate to beat Hogan for a lot of reasons. You know, it's so interesting. People forget. Hogan was surprised himself when he won. Nobody thought it was going to happen. <laughs> Nobody thought that was possible. Yeah. I have seen in the last nine days that anything is possible. You were a big Anthony Brown supporter. I supported Anthony Brown, absolutely. I chaired the Anthony Brown campaign here with a couple other people. Were you surprised that he um, lost? You know, as much as I like Anthony Brown, I just didn't feel like his campaign apparatus was <laughs> adequate. And I, I don't know. The message was wrong, the wrong message. I don't know what happened. He didn't show up. But people didn't show up either. Yep. He didn't show up. People Like 120,000 fewer Democrats voted in that election. Pretty extraordinary number. Hogan only won by 65,000 votes. Correct. And 55,000 of those votes came out of Baltimore County. And Kevin used to talk about that all the time. So Baltimore County is a very, very important um, battleground for the for the state house, and you can't win it without Baltimore County. So we know that uh, we're going to focus hard on Baltimore County, but also in um you know Montgomery and Prince George's and Baltimore City. The, the you know 65 percent or so of the vote in the primary is going to come out of those jurisdictions. We don't have a lot of time, but we know that we're going to begin to generate, as you said, uh, we're we're generating national press. Also, by the way, we trended um, the number three story of the day on Twitter. Thursday, yeah. Yeah, on Thursday. So that means that a lot of people are following this. And then it's just pretty extraordinary. So um, our press coverage and how many uh, interviews we've got lined up, I'm exhausted because I'm on, I'm doing a lot of interviews with people who are following this race for many reasons. It's because 
women have done so well uh, in Pennsylvania this past week. Women were the big winners. Um, yeah, there's no women in the Pennsylvania congressional delegation, but that's going to change yeah, in 2019. It's about to change, and I think with the big women's march in 2017 when Trump took over as president, that has been such a tremendous wave that women really are looking to see where they see themselves in these candidates. We have an opportunity. We're going to take it. We're going to work really hard. Um, And I hope that our message resonates with the voters that we need to come out and support us. Yeah. Well, it's been an unbelievable couple of weeks. And, you know, I know that this is an unlikely story. And, but you got to put one foot forward. And I know that Kevin would be rooting you on. He totally would. I I, think he is. (laughs) You know, and I think that his spirit will live on. And as I wrote in my article that Kevin, I hope that his passion is passed down to younger generations. My, I mean, I'm 32 years old and I see that he had a real, a real spirit to serve. I mean, that was who he was. And you know, and, and people can disagree or agree, and people didn't always see the softer side of him, and I know you did, and sometimes when you're in public office and you're running for governor, you're reserved. You don't let a lot of the personal side out, but I think this really opened up a lot of hearts and people and said, I really, I mean, even I said to my wife, I said, I would love to have gotten to know him better than I did, just on the surface, and it, and I felt at a loss because when I heard people retelling great stories about him at his funeral service, I thought, man, I, I, I really should have went out of my way to try to get to know him better. But I think that's what we learned from this experience. I mean, people always like to, uh, you know, point their finger at somebody and, and see what their weaknesses are yeah. without actually really getting to know that person as a human being. He was such a lovely man. And uh, obviously, you heard all the accolades coming from all over the state and in passing. But it made me stop and think about what I might think about an individual could be completely like wrong. And uh, we should just take the time to get to know each other better. There's always another story, another. Yeah. There's when you you don't know what people are dealing with, and you don't know. I would see Kevin in the in the sweetest ways with people that. And I know that's why people loved him in the Baltimore County. So you just don't know a person in passing. You have to spend some time getting to know them. That's right. So a little bit of housekeeping. Since that you're having a new campaign apparatus set up, where can people find information about you and your running mate online? So we had to hurry up and get a website up in 24 hours. It's www.ValerieForMaryland.com. Yep. And that'll tell you all about all you need to know. And I'm sure there's going to be multiple campaign events following this week. And you have to remember, I've just been a a candidate three days, not three days. (laughs) And you've been making the circuit. You've been doing media. You've been getting your name out throughout all over the state. And I'm sure that you've had the the Washington Post talk to you, the Baltimore Sun, Maryland Matters, me. I saw a great conversation you had with Josh Kurtz. Um, and he reprinted that. So, um, Valerie, I know that it's been, I can't even imagine the extraordinary pressure and um, intensity that has been driving your day. So, 
Um, but nonetheless, I really appreciate you doing this. I think you're the best out here, and I love following you. <laughs> and I thank you for just giving me the opportunity to talk to folks who don't know me. Um, it's really important. And since I, I like that the tagline that the Washington Post has, democracy dies in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And thank God for bloggers, um, because we need you out here telling these stories to people who are following politics. So thank you for taking the trip out here to my house and, and Silver Spring. And uh, I need to get below the beltway more often. Yeah, come on down. Yeah, and, all right. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk. Valerie Irving, candidate for governor. She's going to... Candidate for governor. She's going to be on television. You can watch that tomorrow night. What channel? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> can you uh, put that up somewhere? I will find that information. So thank you, Valerie, for doing this. Thank you so much. All right. And with that, I will be back next week, I believe, with either Danielle Mateev, who's running for county council, or Joel Rubin, who's running for District 18 as a Democrat. So one of those two agreed, and I just got to figure out which one is going to be on the show. So with that, I hope everybody has a great week. Keep following a minor detail, uh, and uh, I'll bring you the latest breaking news. So thank you very much.